Hey there, and welcome to the show today. I am your host, Michael Blanc. I am excited that you're here. Today, we're going to shine the light on passive investing because, you know, maybe you've actually been successful at saving some money in your life and you're trying to figure out what to do with it, right? So you traditionally gave it to your financial advisors. They've invested it and you're up 20%, then you're only up 10%, then you're down 20% the next year and you're like, my gosh, am I actually making money? Meanwhile, your stockbrokers are making fees every single time. Every time you sell something, you have to pay taxes on it, right? So it's very frustrating, even from my own experience before having gotten into, into multifamily is, is how do I make reliable financial projections? And it's really hard to do. And we saw in 2008 where so many people's retirement funds were are wiped out. Now, if you're younger, you've been able to bounce back. But if you're old at the time, this was a serious, serious problem with you. And so the question really becomes, is the dream of retirement just a dream? Is it possible to actually retire early? And today we're going to talk about that because, in fact, it is not just a dream because you can actually retire early and you can do it in your lifetime. In fact, you can do it in just a handful of years. And we've shed the light on this now, uh, a few podcast episodes, we're going to do it again. So we're going to actually, our guest has done it, okay? So we're not just making the stuff, he's actually done it and he's proven that it can be done. And we're going to talk to him about how exactly he did it because he's not a multimillionaire. How was he able, within a short number of years, quit his job with passively investing? So let's stick around. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. So make sure that you follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm the Michael Blanc on both Facebook and Instagram. All right. So make sure you follow me there. In fact, uh, we actually have, uh, gosh, 8,000 followers on the Facebook platform. We also have about 6,000 in our private Facebook group. So you may not know about this, but it's called the Apartment Investor Network. So go to Facebook, search for Apartment Investor uh, Network and uh, and submit. It, it is a private, so we do screen. You have to answer a few questions. If you don't answer them, you don't get in. Sorry, if you behave badly, we're going to kick you out. And it's just one of those that's super active, super excited about that. We have about 6,000 people in there. So check that out, Apartment Investor Network. All right, on to our show here. Uh, we have Travis Watts on the show. Travis is a full-time passive investor. Now, as I said earlier, we've been highlighting this a little bit over the last few episodes, over the last uh, four months or so. Uh, we have the last one in episode 186. So that's the michaelblank.com forward slash session 186 or 186 for short with Spencer Hilligoss. Session 181, we've had Jan Larson and then 174, Ryan McKenna. So 186, 181, 174 are the ones that we have. What I really want to do is I want to show you how it's possible to literally have financial freedom by passively investing. Because I got to be honest with you, when you do have some money to invest, actually investing it passively is darn near equivalent to investing it actively, right? So if you have money to invest, really question whether you want to invest it actively because there's a lot of work and responsibility and headaches that you have when you're actually the sponsor. So investing passively is super, super exciting and a super way to, to literally quit your job. And Travis is a perfect example of that. He's now a full-time investor. He's actually investor relations with Ashraf Capital, which my good friend Joe Fairless is heading up. So really cool to get to talk with him about that before 
and he's all about what he calls time freedom. And I call that financial freedom because financial freedom is a predecessor for having your time back. So, really saying the same thing. But what's cool about him is, you know, he didn't start off, he didn't inherit a bunch of money. He wasn't a millionaire. He was just you know, working like everybody else. And what he did very well was he maintained a uh, a lifestyle and he didn't expand his lifestyle beyond what he was making. And this allowed him to have some investments. Now, when he first got started, he didn't have a lot of money. And he got started with single family house investing like so many people do. And he kind of caught the bug until he finally realized that this single family house investing, man, it's kind of active, right? It was kind of active investing. If you're a landlord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he's scratching his head after a while going, there's got to be something better. And that better is, of course, investing passively in multifamily syndications. So he's going to talk about what his first real estate investment was and why that really wasn't the ideal investment for him at all and how he's been able to get started at all, how he's able to save some money and what do you do with it. I asked him about his last day in a job. That was kind of fun because that was a real thing for him. Uh, We talked a lot about how to vet sponsors because this is an important thing. You don't need a dozen sponsors. You need two or three, but how do you really evaluate those sponsors so you know who to invest with? His biggest aha moment and any advice that he has for you guys watching and listening to this um, you've got some money to invest. What do you do with it? How do you go about it? And something that you can actually do just like he did, which is quit his job. And he did it within like four years or something like that. So it's super, super awesome. Let's get right in the show here with uh, Travis Swats. Here we go. Travis, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's awesome to have you today. You know, we're starting to shine a light on passive investors who are literally full-time quit their jobs, right? It's a thing. And you had a pretty demanding job in the oil industry, working a lot of hours, traveling a lot. And you were able to leave that job due to the income you're learning from passive investing. I I was going to ask you, Travis, describe to me your last day at work. Oh, man. (laughs) That was an interesting one. So kind of the backstory there is I was in Colorado and I was working locally. And so that entailed, you know, very cold winters, sub-zero temperatures, 14 hours a day outside. It was terrible. And uh, so I, I took this approach to go uh, work in the Middle East. So then I went to the other extreme, right? It's 120 degrees now, sweat my butt off, and that's also miserable. <laughs> so this was kind of, I kind of saw this, this oil downturn that had happened and kind of saw the writing on the wall of what could happen. And I was actually already ready to make the leap into quitting that job. And that just kind of gave me the the kick in the butt to actually do it. So it actually resulted in a layoff, which was much needed in my case. And I was actually thrilled to get the call when they said, you know, don't worry about coming back. I thought, okay, I'm excited now. <laughs> it, it sounds to me at that point, you already had uh, significant income from your investments at that point. That's right. Yep. I had already become financially independent through cash flow, specifically through real estate. And I was just not really knowing which path I wanted to take from there and just kind of taking my time deciding. And I just needed that kick in the butt to get started. That's interesting. Why are you hemming and hawing over that? (laughs) I guess I, I didn't ever set out necessarily to achieve that goal. It came a little quicker than I had anticipated. And when it was there, I was kind of caught a little unprepared. You know, what do you do when you're a a younger individual and you don't necessarily want to quote unquote retire as far as I don't want to work anymore for the rest of my life? I didn't know what to do, really. So I had a a job that was, you know, high income. And I thought, well, I'll just 
park here for a while, I guess, till I figure it out. And then, uh, yeah, getting laid off gave me that push to really soul search and figure out what I was going to do. I think retirement is a myth. Like who actually wants to retire? Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It kind of is. And why does it have to be at age 65, you know, or 59 and a half? I mean, everyone sets these benchmarks, but they're kind of artificial. Why does it have to be that way? Right. So it's not retirement we want. What is it? I, I think it's just we want to be able to control our time, right? I mean, that's, I don't know. I, what, what was it for you? Well, I refer to it as time freedom. Yeah. yeah. The ability to do what you want when you want with your time. I mean, if nothing else, it gives you options, right? I mean, and so for me, it gave me an option to the job I didn't like, the job that was like literally taking my life away. <laughs> I was away from home and I was working way too much. I had now the option to say, you know what? I don't have to do that. You know, I can take on a job that pays half as much that I learn 10 times as much from. Now, you still work hard now, but what's different than working hard before? Like, how is your life different now than it was back in the heyday? Yeah, I think when, when I think of work, quote unquote, or hours put into a project, the difference is mentally, I was completely unhappy doing what I used to do as a W-2 employee working the oil field. I felt mm. like a big mismatch in that industry. It just didn't fit me. You know, I didn't like manual labor. I didn't like working outside yet. I was doing all those things. So every day was a struggle, right? Just to get up and show up. I just hated that process. And so the difference is once I quit that due to passive income, I could then pursue things I was actually interested in, things that I would personally grow from. And for everybody, that's different. It might be charity or more church, volunteer, travel, or, you know, for me, it was just keep on plugging away, but make it a personal growth journey and not just, oh, I have this job because it, it pays pretty well. Okay. Well, so what, is a, what does that mean for you? A personal growth journey? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, so the first thing I was getting involved with more and more was apartment syndications and being truly a passive investor. I wanted to learn more and more about that. And yes, there's the podcasts, of course, obviously like this, and there's books and you could get a mentor. But what I really wanted was, was more hands-on. I didn't want to do my own deal per se. I just wanted to be like an insider to understand how this all works day to day. So that's the first thing I did. Uh, well, I'm sorry. The first thing I did is I went to go work for a, a brokerage firm actually to learn Wall Street investing and see how that compared to what I was doing in real estate. Once I realized I didn't want to do that, <laughs> then I had the flexibility to, to leave that to go work for a syndication group. And then I could start learning how they, you know, underwrite and acquisition and, and the whole process. So even today, I, you know, I, I affiliate with uh, Ashcroft Capital. So Joe Fairless's group and uh, investor relations. All I really do is I, I network and I talk to people about investing and, and multifamily and passive income. And I just love that process. You know, I do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going back to your, your, your quitting your job, what did your coworkers think or your family and friends, like what was their reaction? I mean, I don't think a lot of people in, in the mentality that I worked around could really grasp the concept of having enough passive income to quit their job. I think 99% of them would have taken that option had they known it was an option. What I really saw though was poor spending habits, poor budgeting. So we all made the same amount. But at the end of the day, a lot of those guys that got laid off at the same time I did had nothing to resort to and had to scramble and just, you know, had to hit the ground running to find some kind of income source where I had built up that flexibility by saving most of my money that I made. 
And so what, what did you do? I mean, I think it's a good point. I mean, because it, especially in our culture, you know, the more money we make, the more money we spend. How did you resist that in some way? I was brought up very conservative by a couple parents that were extreme budgeters. And, you know, if it wasn't on sale or off brand or we didn't have a coupon, we didn't buy it. <laughs> and that's how that went. And uh, so I was just kind of raised that way. I always had an awareness of if all I had was a hundred bucks, I needed to be very wise with that and make that last as long as I could. And in college, I did some extreme budgeting things. I would do $2 a meal, three meals a day and no more. So I spent six bucks a day on food. And, you know, I would just, I always kind of had that ingrained in me. So at the time where I went from making at some of my entry level jobs, like say 20,000 a year to making six figures, I didn't really change my lifestyle, right? So I still lived on the bare bones minimum for many years. I took all that savings and I invested that into real estate. So that helped propel that process. Do you have family? No kids yet, no. Okay, that's good. <laughs> now, sometimes yeah. they make that a little more difficult, but but yeah. I, think, I think that's Agreed. great because not a lot of people do that, right? They just expand their lifestyle. And so the fact that you're saving has already set you apart from a lot of other people. I think the other thing though is, so people who do save, like what do they do with their money? What were you doing with your money before you started investing in multifamily? Yep. Good question. I did start, I guess you could say investing or, or real estate with single family. And so, I mean, I literally started just with buying myself a home. It was pretty much coincidence that it happened to be 2009. I saw the housing prices dropping, you know, rapidly the government was giving out the $8,000 first time home buyer tax credit. So it's kind of this combination of I'd read a couple books, I'd seen my dad do a little bit of single family. And then there was that opportunity. And since I had saved a little bit, you know, I think I started with maybe 20,000 total, which, you know, I'd been working since I was like 14 or 15. So, you know, it accumulated over time. I was able to, to make that first investment, right? I lived in the home. I ended up renting rooms out of the home, doing like a house hacking <laughs> strategy. Uh, it was next to a college campus. So I ended up having a couple of roommates over time. And anyway, it just kind of evolved, right? As I started seeing passive income, cash flows, you know, something I didn't have to work for. And at the time, I wasn't earning much as far as wages go. And that made a huge impact in my life at that time in ratio or as a percentage to my income. Did you ever invest in the stock market or was this house like literally your first investment? Yeah. So my parents had set aside what they could for me for college and they'd put that all into mutual funds, basically in a brokerage account. That got a little bit hit through the downturn, but also, which is kind of totally ironic and weird, my dad had given me rich dad prophecy most people start with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's kind of their gateway book into, into real estate. This was Rich Dad Prophecy. All I really took away from that book was we're going to have a huge stock market collapse. Yeah. Don't know when, don't know what that's going to look like. It's going to happen. And so I got freaked out and I sold the majority of that, not knowing what else to do with it, but just thought, well, I don't, I don't want to lose it, right? That's all I knew. <laughs> and so I sat mostly in cash through the downturn and I was able to you know, to, to keep the majority of that anyway. That book paid for itself. So that's pretty cool. So, uh, so yeah, so you get into this house and you house hacked it and you had some, some tenants living in the house uh, along with you. Is that right? That's and, right. And then what'd you do from there? Uh, was that the, what investment did you make after that? How did that turn out? 
So at that point, I really decided I wanted to pursue real estate like more professionally, more seriously. I really wanted to do this. And I had moved out of that house and rented it to two separate tenants. And I rented it fully furnished to get the maximum rent that I could and uh, bought another home and, and kind of did a, a rinse and repeat type of process for a while. It was during that time that I knew what I was earning as far as my W-2 was never going to suffice to what I wanted to accomplish in real estate. So I went seeking a high paying job. Hence why I got involved with the oil industry. It was about the only opportunity where I could make a very solid income locally. So I just took what I could get basically. And, and that's where that evolved. And I kept saving and putting it into single family at the time. So you were buying, you were just uh, buying and holding. Yeah. So I did buy and hold. I would do, uh, I still call it a fix and flip, but basically a buy a distressed property, fix it up, maybe rent it for a little while, like up to 12 months for tax reasons. And then I would sell it. So kind of okay. a longer, I'm sure there's a name for that strategy, but <laughs> so I did that. And then I, I eventually got into vacation rentals in the single family realm, uh, in Denver. And at that point, it was really becoming a job for me between the fix and flips, the buy and holds and the vacation rentals. It's like, you know, here I am working 100 hours a week W2. And now I got this portfolio, I'm having to manage, I'm having to pull in my friends and family, my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife saying, can you go collect that rent check? Can you go fix that sprinkler head? I'll give you 100 bucks. You know, <laughs> and it just and then I got a property management company. And I felt like it, it just increased my workload even more. And man, this is not scalable. It's not sustainable. And it's certainly not passive. And that's really what I wanted was the passive income from the very beginning. I just went about it the wrong way. Right, exactly. Okay, so what did you do to fix that? So I kind of went back to the drawing board. It was, it was a rough time for me, really, because I was away from home. I was overseas. I felt like I was getting in over my head with this uh, single family stuff. So... I had everything in my head from quit real estate, go into the stock market, do something different to make it passive all the way from, you know, someone out there is doing this in a passive way. They have to be. How do these gurus and, and these big moguls, right? How are they passive? It doesn't make sense. So I, I kind of went back to the drawing board to do podcasts, books, uh, real estate meetups when I was home, things like that to figure out how to make something like this passive. And I kept hearing the word syndication. From various people. Have you heard of syndication? Have you tried syndication? You should consider this. I had no idea what that meant at the time. So I started doing my research, figured out it, it seemed on the surface to be exactly what I wanted, but it seemed honestly a little too good to be true. And I'm looking at some pro formas and I'm thinking, wait a second, I could potentially make more money doing that than I'm doing actively. And I thought, there's no way that's, that's not possible. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, I did one syndication locally. And that's how I got started. And I was skeptical. And I sat back about six months and I watched the distribution start coming in and I watched the monthly reporting start coming in. And I started to have that like epiphany, that aha moment of like, this could actually be scalable and sustainable. And it literally is passive. And so that put me on a whole different trajectory. So in your mind, when you, you, were, you were testing this out, obviously, you're like, oh, let me try it. And in your mind, when you started seeing the pro formas and you saw some of the distribution checks come in, did you do any kind of financial projections at all? And if so, what were they? I think in the beginning, what one mistake I would say that I made is putting way too much emphasis on a pro forma 
and not on the group behind the deal okay. and what their track record is and what their experience is and how big their team is and their network. And I was just simply looking at deals going, well, this one's 10%, this one's eight. Well, I'm going to go with 10. Yeah, right? Yeah, right, that, right. that makes more sense. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I probably made a few investments there that in hindsight I wouldn't have made. And as far as projections go, different people follow different models. I don't know if you're familiar with the FIRE movement which is financial independence, retire early, but common formula. Very extreme people, though, isn't it? It can be. It's, it's typically centered around you know, people who have uh, high wage earners that mm. stock away a lot, kind of like I did, to essentially retire early or have that financial freedom as quick as possible yeah. and live below your means and all that. So a common rule that folks in that movement follow is the 4% rule. So, I mean, you can say, okay, I want 30,000 a year passive income. So you take that. 30,000 times 25, and that's how much you need invested at 4% to get that outcome. So it'd be like 750,000, I think. So, you know, you could follow something like that, makes it pretty streamlined, fairly conservative, but uh, that's just one guide. You can use your own numbers and base that off 8% or 6 or whatever, but you start getting too aggressive and maybe you're getting a little outside reality that some investments aren't going to do what you hope. And, you know, you may lose money along the way, making some bad investments, things like that. So 4% might be a good rule for some, but, you know, I, I don't know what I was doing back then. I think I was probably just looking at a pro forma saying, wow, that's going to be <laughs> 10% for the next five years. You know, that sounds good. Have you, have you tracked it all and try to, try to calculate average annual return or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, the majority of the deals I've done did the pro forma. I mean, they met the expectations. Some exceeded, a couple of them fell slightly below and a couple are still in the works. So, yeah. you know, to be determined. But yeah, between my wife and I, we've done roughly probably 25 different passive deals, you know, in syndications of different sorts, mostly multifamily. But we try to invest with good teams with track records and who can pull off these business plans. So, so far, so good. <laughs> I want to get your thoughts on on that because that's really really important. Uh, before we do that, though, some of the, some of the numbers of someone listening to this, they're like, "What kind of income can I generate doing this?" Mm -hmm. Can you give people an idea? Yeah, I, I think what it's important first to look at is is what your core beliefs are as far as your investment philosophy. So, which markets do you want to be in? What type of investing do you want to do? Some people love new development. Some people love C class affordable workforce housing, things like that. I tend to invest in B-class multifamily. These are apartment buildings from the 1980s, 1990s, and usually with like a value add component to them. So you're going to you know, increase rents over time by making the community a better place. So it's kind of a win-win. Uh, just ballpark numbers, I think it's still realistic to expect somewhere between maybe a, a 7 to 10% a year cash flow if the business plan is properly executed. And then in most cases, you're participating in any equity upside down the road upon the disposition or sale or refinance. So that could bring those numbers potentially higher, maybe 50% higher, maybe 100% higher, it just depends on the business plan. So it's a nice double digit potential return that I personally find pretty conservative, all things considered, pretty recession resistant, if you will. Recession resistant, double digit return, consistent cash flow, part of cash flow, part of pre depreciation. Yep. And what about the taxes on this? Because that's all concern is capital mm -hmm. gains. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the good thing is with with most deals and pretty much every deal that we've taken part in, you have flow through depreciation. 
right? And, and with multifamily, it may make a lot of sense to do a cost segregation and to, to capture some bonus depreciation and things like that. Those are just paper losses that are going to flow through to the investors. So just to paint that as simply as I can, if let's say as an example, you receive $10,000 for the year in distributions and cash flow on paper, when you go to do your taxes, you may have a negative 20,000 loss, quote unquote, right? It's not a real loss, but you know, in other words, all that 10,000 was tax free while you received it. And then yes, there's capital gains upon sale. I think the idea there is that, you know, you potentially will have enough positive gains at the end to offset any tax obligation you may have. And then of course, you could look into maybe doing a 1031 option or something like that, if applicable for you at that time. So there's ways to continue deferring taxes. But, okay. Uh, uh, is yeah. a 1031, is that even an option with a syndication or most in most cases not? I would say most cases not, but it is possible. Yes, there are groups that do accommodate to it. So my thing with that is it's so much easier to do a 1031 on a single family home. It just is. And then, you know, because at the end of a syndication, you're going to have to find a deal, first of all, that makes sense to you. Secondly, they're going to have to accommodate a 1031 without a, a big threshold, like a million dollar minimum or something. And then, you know, it's just harder and harder to find. To make that sustainable over a lifetime, I think would be very difficult personally, but who knows. Now, what role does, uh, for example, sales and refinance play into this into this picture, right? Because there's a cash on cash return, 7 to 10%, right. but yep. then there's also liquidity events. And to what degree do you rely on those or, or what effect does that have on your overall returns? Yeah. So it's kind of a, these types of investments we're talking about are, are, like you said, they're twofold. So there's the cash flow element and there's the monthly distributions or the quarterly distributions in most cases. And then there's like years later. So let's look five years down the road. Maybe we're going to sell the property or do a refinance or something like that. So me personally, I'm a cash flow investor. My number one focus and 90% of my focus is on the cash flow projections. Mm -hmm. If the equity happens to be there, that's amazing. But you know, to look at a pro forma and say it's going to probably be a 30% bump five years from now, I take it with a grain of salt. Who knows? Maybe it's there, maybe it's not. So uh, different for everyone. I wouldn't put too much emphasis on the, on the five years down the road, what the world looks like. <laughs> Now, explain to people how the refinance works as a past investor, right? Because that does have an effect on your cash on cash return. Mm -hmm. uh, and what is the impact to you of a refinance? Yeah, so there's different models out there. I'd say a lot of groups focus on this five-year model of we're going to buy it, we're going to fix it up, we're going to increase rents, we're going to get occupancy up, and then we're going to sell it. That's probably the most common model in apartment syndication. However, there are groups that we invest with that you can also invest with that have more of an infinite return type of model. So they're gonna buy it, fix it up, increase occupancy and rents, and then go to refinance so that they can send back uh, whatever capital you initially invested, or as much of that as possible as you go along, to the point where let's say you'd put in 50,000 from day one, five years down the road, you have that 50,000 back because of one or two refinances. Now you essentially have no money in the deal. So everything you continue earning from that point forward becomes more like an infinite return because it can't be measured because you have no money in the deal. So that's also a great model. We kind of do a mix as much as possible of, of those two strategies. Yeah, I love that. I mean, if we can get those, uh, we do those all day long because the investor gets either all, like you said, infinitive or at least a majority of their money back. They still get a cash flow. 
Now they're yes. yeah, about 30, 40% cash on cash. They take that same money and put it in a new deal. And they yeah. now getting a return on that money. And like the combined cash on cash of that same, whatever, $100,000 is, is fairly enormous at this point over time, which is really cool. Do you use your IRA for investing? I have. So for many years, I used a self-directed IRA and I wish more people knew that this was an option. But if you have an old 401k or an old IRA or Roth or whatever it may be, you can convert that to a self-directed, which instead of investing in stocks, bonds, mutual funds and you know Fidelity and Schwab and all the traditional stuff you see out there, you can get more into actual real estate investing, note lending, investing in businesses, gold, silver. There's all these these things that if you're tuned into that and you understand the impact and value behind investing in those may make a lot of sense for you, but of course not for everyone. But yeah, I certainly have in the yeah, past. That's, yeah. that's great. Have you been affected by the, the UBIT tax in the IRA at all or is not not really relevant? I wasn't. So my personal philosophy with this is I took, uh, I made investments with my self-directed IRA because it was a pre-tax account in things that were not tax advantaged mm -hmm. themselves. So mm -hmm. I didn't actually do syndications with depreciation and, and UBIT and all that. I did uh, some note lending mm -hmm. and a couple funds that paid interest basically. So there's no tax advantage to that. You just, you just pay taxes on it. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what I did. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. So, all right. So you've done a lot of investing and you've done some single family house investing and you've seen a lot of things. Have you ever had any kind of aha moment, you know, that when you're like, wow, that's amazing. And so what was that? There's been so many aha moments. <laughs> uh, I mean, we talked about going passive with, with syndication for single family. That was obviously probably the biggest. Another one I would point out is I read a book called uh, Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright. Great book. And just to understand, and there's a new edition of that too, since our tax change yep. that just happened. And uh, just to understand, you can structure legally your situation potentially to pay zero in taxes. And, you know, I never got into real estate for tax advantages or for any type of tax purpose, but it ended up over time making this huge impact to see that you really can pay no tax legally at a federal and state level. So I don't know how much money that book has saved me, but it was definitely one of those like, holy crap, you know, this stuff's real. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tom's uh, philosophy is not that they can save money, but how can they save in taxes? And, and their goal is to basically get the down to 0%. So I've actually worked with them and they're, they're not cheap to work with, but I will tell you, and I agree with you, that book paid for itself. I'd say that investment paid for itself. They're just so creative and they're mm -hmm. so custom to whatever your situation is because they really try to understand your situation. And then they figure out what they can do to essentially approach zero on your taxes. And it's a really fresh approach to taxes. I mean, typically for years for my, you know, the CPA has always been reactive more than proactive. Yes. And yes. while they do do taxes, their main model is simply advising you on your tax strategy and working with your CPA on that. So that was, uh, that was pretty amazing. I mean, Tom really knows his stuff and uh, he's not afraid to, you know, read the tax code. So anything else that was kind of a big aha moment for you? Well, I mean, just, just to, to piggyback on that, what you just alluded to is also a critical thing for real estate investors. Find a CPA firm, whether it's Tom or anyone else, that specializes in what you do specifically. That 
really made a big impact when I worked in the oil industry and I was working overseas. Hmm. The, the current CPA I had had no idea that I was exempt from a lot of taxable income. It was crazy. Right. I know. And then as I kind of retroactively looked back and I thought, wait a second, like no one else was really paying taxes there legally, but I was, you know, I had to amend and, and just the lessons learned of finding a competent CPA that focuses on what you focus on is critical. That's a pretty hot moment that the tax law, you know, Tom always makes the point that no CPA actually ever reads a tax law because one size does not fit all. So I, that's a pretty big aha moment for me that, holy cow, there's stuff in the tax code I've never even heard of before, yep. you know, and people like Tom have. Yep. And they right. may not know it off the top of their head. They might say, hey, you want, let me look into this and get back to you. And then literally they get back to you. So that was for me a big aha moment also. And it, like you said, it varies, right? You could be a dentist or a doctor uh, investing passively. Your situation is going to be different than yours or mine. Yes. And, right. and and having that person figure out how to offset you know, active income with the passive losses, it's just magic. It's magic. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is. And it's not my expertise individually. So again, right. leverage my other either. expertise. Yeah. But it can be incredible for you. Yep. Now, what advice do you have for someone, you know, who's maybe in your shoes, right? Yeah, relatively good income and ability to to save some money and, and make some investments, typically in the stock market, or maybe they own a piece of real estate, you know, and they're like, holy cow, Travis has been able to essentially quit his job or, you know, cover his living expenses entirely by passive income. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for that person to do what you've done? I would say two things to start with. Start with trying to find a why, trying to find a reason. Why do you not want to work a job you don't like, you know, till the day you die? Or what are you passionate about? You know, what are some things you wouldn't mind spending a lot more of your time on if you had that opportunity? I just don't think a lot of people focus on why, and it's more of maybe a sheep mentality of, you know, everyone else is working, I guess I'll work and no one else likes their job. I guess I don't have to have one that I like too. And so start with your why and get a budget down, understand where your money's going. Okay. Right, hold on. Before you get to the budget, that's really that's good stuff. So understand your why. why. Why is that important? What difference does it make that you understand that? That's going to be your biggest motivator to continue going. If you make a why like, well, I want to make 10,000 a month passive income and that's it. You don't even know why you're doing it. Then, you know, the first hurdle that comes up that kind of kicks you and gives you a hard time, you're going to go, ah, it's not worth it. You know, I, I thought I wanted that. I guess not, you know, whatever. But if you have a real passionate why, you know, spending more time with your kids or you know, putting your kids through college, whatever it may be, everyone obviously is different. That's going to keep motivating you to move forward as you hit roadblocks and hurdles along the way. That's why I think that's important. Okay, good. Yeah, I love that. All right. And then you were going to, you were talking about budget. Again, self-awareness, like, okay, it doesn't matter if you earn 20000 a year or 200000 a year, where's your money going? How much is going into just taxes? You know, how much is going into living? Do you, do you need three or four cars? Could you deal with one or two? Uh, there's just always something to look at on a financial spreadsheet. I've always kept one, by the way, even from high school, which is crazy. I was doing like lawn mowing jobs. I knew where, where all my money was. And um, it's just helpful, right? It's just, it, it helps you realize that, you know, hey, I could cut 200 a month if I just didn't do that, which I don't even really care about, right? I'm just buying food on the way home at, you know, fast food or something. <laughs> so. All right. So your why and your budget. Now, I think the other thing you alluded to earlier on this note is what's advice for someone to get started is I think it's fairly important 
that you picked and select the right sponsor to invest with. And you said earlier, one of your first deal wasn't maybe the best sponsor. It doesn't sound like it was a nightmare, but maybe it wasn't a, a pro forma kind of investment. What is your advice on finding and vetting a good sponsor to invest with? That's a great question. Very open-ended question. But typically, I, I guess I'll just talk in general terms, try to find a group that one, you align with in philosophy, right? So if you believe that there's some markets in Texas and Florida that are really growing that you think are great markets to be in. Maybe don't look at deals of a group that's doing investing in Maine, you know, when you know nothing about that market and it doesn't resonate or California or something like that. So first try to find a group that matches up well to you. For me personally, it was, I wanted monthly distributions. For me, that was important, especially getting started just because that was, that was my income, you know? So do I want to be paid once a quarter or once a month? And then they were investing in markets that, that I also believed in myself. They did have a track record. It was more than just a single individual on the team, right? They had an actual team. They had the experience. I mean, they could show me here's, you know, five, six deals that, that we completed, you know, there's our results and numbers. And then as they had a new one come up, I felt a lot more comfortable making that investment. And as I did allude to earlier, I had made I'd say two or three total investments with groups that were brand new. Maybe they'd done one or two deals, something like that. The beauty of it, the, the thing that I really learned was the deal itself came through. We actually ended up hitting more or less the pro form. We didn't execute the business plan as intended, but they ended up not being able to distribute and, and things kind of went south. Well, they just put it up for sale and they were able to exit the investors at a profit. So I do believe in the underlying asset itself of multifamily. That's kind of the beauty of it. That's great. This is so this is good stuff. And then how can people typically find these kind of sponsors? That's also a good question. So there's different regulations out there between a, a 506B and a 506C. So high level there, a 506C, you can generally solicit, you can put that out there to the world in any form or fashion, because you can only take accredited investors high net worth individuals with a million dollar net worth, excluding their primary residence, 200,000 a year income. If they're individual, 300,000 for a married couple. So those are a lot easier to find in my opinion, because they're, they're advertising those, right? The other thing is 506B, I think is what a lot of groups are doing. So they can't generally solicit, but they can still advertise like their business as a whole, like who they are and what they do. You find a lot of these groups through real estate meetups, through you know seminars and, and things like that. I personally am a, I'm a huge fan of doing that kind of stuff. I recognize not everybody is. And yes, it costs a little bit of money, but I'm a big networker and I just love attending stuff like that. So if, if you have the ability or, or something's coming your way through your town, you know, go to it, you know, go spend a couple hundred bucks or whatever it may be and, and uh, go network with people. And so a lot of the investments we do, they start with a word of mouth referral. I'll hear someone at a conference say, Hey, have you checked out this group? You ever heard of them? I've been investing with them in three, four deals. And yeah, I think they're pretty awesome. You know, things have gone, you know, it's a great team. That's usually how it starts. And then I'll kind of start my due diligence from there. And, uh, you know, a few months later, usually make an investment with them if everything checks out. So it's good, Travis. It's great. How, how can people uh, connect with you? Yeah. Uh, email is usually the best way. Uh, I'm always traveling and, and doing something. So Travis at ashcroftcapital.com is my email. You can find me too on uh, LinkedIn and, and Facebook and things like that. It's Travis Watts. My last name is W-A-T-T-S. So reach out in any way you can. And uh, 
I always like talking real estate just like this, right? With <laughs> doesn't have to be an agenda to it, but uh, this is just what I'm passionate about, what I love doing. So definitely reach out. Travis, it's great having you on the show and really inspiring our past investors to follow your footsteps of you know, achieving financial freedom with past investments. So thanks for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. If you are like Travis and has some money to invest, okay, please really take a look at multifamily syndications. I cannot emphasize this enough. Listen to this, obviously, uh, podcast, but also episode 186 with Spencer Hilligoss. 181 with Jan Larson and 174 with Ryan McKenna, okay? This is not a one-off thing, guys, okay? This is something that is real, something within three to five years you can literally replace your income, cover your living expenses, and you are done as a passive investor, and it's super, super cool. If you want to check us out at Nighthawk Equity, you can uh, join our investment club, which is nighthawkequity.com forward slash join, or just go to nighthawkequity.com and click the join button. You'll fill out a very, very short form, schedule a call with us so we can get to know each other and make sure that, as Travis talks about, there's an alignment there, the kind of deals that we're doing and what you're looking for is a cash flow appreciation, a little bit of both, what kind of markets, those kind of questions. So go to nighthawkequity.com forward slash join. I uh, would look forward to talking with you. So anyway, so if you are a passive investor or a potential passive investor, really educate yourself. Such a powerful way to build cash flow long-term wealth by investing in multifamily syndications. It is by far the best investment vehicle on the planet is US-based multifamily syndications. So excited about that. So thanks for being me on the show and we'll catch you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.